Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God on this day. And I'm going to mark this day as Saturday, May 25th, 2013. It is the 145, uh, 145th day of the year and 220 days remaining in the year 2013. So... What are we going to talk about today? We're we're in the middle of a series on Christians. And I had a number of thoughts that uh, during the week that I was going to talk to you about. But then I had a couple of emails last night. Uh, people asking questions and uh, learning more about what we talk about and what we do here at His Holy Church. And why is His Holy Church His Holy Church? It's... His Holy Church is what He established, what Christ established. He called men out. He appointed those men. He told them He was going to take the kingdom away from a group of people called the Pharisees and I'm sure also the Sadducees, but the Pharisees were kind of in control at the time. And He was going to give it to another that bore fruit. And I assume that the others that He was going to give it to were going to be doing something very much different than the Pharisees and the ruling powers at that time were doing. And their ruling powers included uh, Herod the Great when Jesus was born, although he was dead by the time Jesus began his ministry. And no one sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes along preaching this kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist was doing the same and he was... When asked how it worked, he said, those that have, share with those that don't have enough. Don't have a coat, and your neighbor has two, your neighbor ought to share. Now, there's another philosophy going around that if you don't have a coat and your neighbor has two, he has to share, not he ought to share. It's not going to wait for faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty for you to decide whether or not you're going to share. Someone's going to force you to share. That's stealing, unless, of course, you've signed up to an agreement where you all have one purse, which the Bible talks about, in which case it is not stealing, but it is coveting. You desire what is your neighbor's. You desire to be taken away from your neighbor. And you make all kinds of rational excuses why it's okay. Oh, he's rich. He's got two coats. He's got three coats. He's got a fancy car. So I can take away from him so that I can have what I don't have. Because I think I need what I don't have. And you may need it. But you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's goods. You're not supposed to take away from your neighbor so that you will have enough. You're supposed to allow your neighbor the right to choose, to give to you. And if he doesn't, then it's on his head. But anyway, on this day in history, in 1234, the Mongols took Tafin and destroyed the Qin dynasty. Also on this day in history, in 1660, Charles II, exiled from the King of England, as the King of England, landed at Dover. He was returning to assume the throne at the end of what some say was 11 years of military rule, but it was actually an attempt to establish a republic instead of a kingdom. 
But they tried to establish it by force, and it didn't work out so well. Plus, in order to have a republic, you have to have a certain kind of people, because in a republic, you're free from things public. It wasn't a very pure republic. But you have to be exercising your right to choose, to do the right thing. This is why the church was referred to as a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire, because it was an actual government. It wasn't a government like you see the church in 1100 or 1200 or 1300. This was before Constantine. What was it doing? Some people, and this is one of the letters that I've received, he refers to the fact that, oh, we don't need priests and nuns and bishops. Jesus has never established that. Well, the fact is, is he's using terms like priests and nuns and bishops because he has a thing against the Roman Catholic Church. And I understand that. I mean, it was the Roman Church that was killing millions upon millions of people and in inquisitions, even though they claim sometimes not to. It's very clear by their own records that they were. And uh, things were a little bit out of control. When they finally uh, slowed down on that process, uh, they were still crowning men king over other men. And those kings would kill thousands and even millions of people and rule over them and exercise authority over them according to the Cain syndrome, this desire to rule over your neighbor. And, of course, that's pervasive today. We do it through a process we call democracy where 51% of the people force the others to contribute to them. Uh, and it's amazing now, today, more than half of the people in the United States get a government check every month, or households. In, in the county where I live, over 75% of the people get a government check. Well, that government check is provided by the other 25% of the people who are working and earning the money to pay the taxes to provide them with a check. So... In that situation, democracy is kind of democracy gone wild, where democracy just wants more and more benefits, more and more pay, more and more uh, of your staff. They want it. They want, you know, they want a nicer car and better retirement and better benefits. And they're going to get them on the back of the other 25 to 30 to 40 percent of the people who are out there working, earning the money to provide them with their benefits. It's it's a bizarre state of affairs, and it's come about in the last hundred years with a tremendous progressive movement towards a socialist state, and which always ends in failure and in doom. And, of course, that's what was going on at the time of Augustus. Augustus had come in after a civil war. He had uh, defeated his enemy and taken the spoils of his enemy. I mean, thousands of people lost all their property, and it went to who? Augustus Caesar. Octavius. He was one of the richest men in all the world at that time. And so, in order to secure his popularity, he became one of the most philanthropic people in all the world. 
At one time, over half of the free bread that was given away weekly in Rome was financed out of his own pocket. But, of course, his pocket was full of the stuff that he had taken from other men's pockets. (laughs) So, he had lots of stuff. He had won. He was the victor. He was the savior of the Roman Empire. He was actually the beginning of the Roman Empire. And things began to change rapidly after that. Now, Herod was doing something very similar at that time in Judea. He was establishing a social welfare system, much like the free bread of Rome. And it required that you apply to his ministers, and they would enter your name into the books. You'd become a registered member of his social welfare system called Corbin. And you would do this including a baptism, a ritual baptism and a registration, and you would have to pay in a small amount, a token amount at first, into the treasury of Herod. Then he had more than one, because he had more than one temple. He had the temple of Roma, and he had the temple in Jerusalem. And they all had members, and they all received benefits based on the money that was included in that treasury. The word Corbin which means sacrifice in the Old Hebrew, was translated in the Noom Bible. Once it actually disappears as the word Corbin, but it also appears as the word treasury, because it was a treasury. There were riots at the time of Jesus Christ under Pontius Pilate, because they the people thought that they were using up the money that was in the treasury, their Corbin, their social welfare money. They were abusing it. And really all they had done, and there was abuse. Uh, it is now, uh, excavations have shown that the priests who were in charge of this fund were living sometimes more opulently than Herod himself. But anyway, the uh, the riots were in response to the fact that they built an aqueduct and they used the social welfare money from this treasury, this Corbin. And they thought, well, there won't be anything for us when we get old and have needs. Because they used it all up on this, this aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. They should have had a separate project for that. And there was a riot, and it was put down by bludgeoning, and Jesus mentions this riot in his own teachings. And Pontius Pilate kind of regretted how forcefully they put down that riot, with Roman centurions dressed like civilians, and then suddenly, on a single signal, they pulled out clubs and started beating the rioters. They didn't have a fire hose, so they couldn't squirt them with a fire hose. They just had to hit them with clubs. They didn't want to kill them, but they wanted to put down this demonstration. This was all going on because they were afraid they were going to pilfer their Social Security fund, their Corbin. 
And all those registered members thought, well, well, there won't be anything for me. But of course, that's not how it works. The way it works is you pay in and take care of the needs of the people while you're working and healthy and strong. And then when you're indigent or old or weak or your family's died and nobody's there to take care of you, the state will step in and take care of you with this treasury that is being replenished by the youth of your society who are now out working. Now, they've always had systems like this. Corbin had been around since the days of Abraham. And it was why they tied to ministers who were in charge to make sure that the needy were not neglected. But in one society, one government, one form of government, this is all done by free will offerings. And other forms of government, it's done by compelled offerings. And someone has the power to decide how much you're going to give and how much you're going to get back and how it's going to be spent. They just have that power. You've given them that power. Cain had that power. Lamech had that power. Nimrod had that power. Pharaoh got that power from you when you made a covenant with Pharaoh that he could take 20% of everything you earned, 20% of your labor for a given year, and he would take care of your welfare. It's always been called bondage. The fund has always been called tribute or an excise, an excise tax. They said that's what it is. And this is the distinction between two forms of government that have been around since the beginning of time, or at least since Cain. One is based on the perfect law of liberty, where you have a right to decide, and we call that a republic, because you're free from things public. You're not subject to other men's will. You don't have a king or president or prime minister who rules over you and exercises authority one over the other. You have the responsibility of taking care of the needs of your society. And you exercise that according to the leading of your heart. And that's what religion was. That's what religion was called. But there's another form of religion. Another way to take care of the needy of your society. And that's when you're controlled by a central government. Where you have leaders who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. That's another form of religion. It's where your priests and ministers can carry guns, you know, like swords or clubs or glocks or whatever, to make sure that you contribute the full amount that is required of you by someone who is ruling over you. Like I said, Cain did it. Lamech did it. Pharaoh did it. Caesar did it. Herod did it. But Jesus did not do it. Jesus went the other way. And that is the difference between Jesus' religion, his way of taking care of the needy, and everybody else's. So now you can ask the question, am I doing it like Jesus would do it? What would Jesus do? <laughs> you seen those t-shirts? What would Jesus do? 
I don't know anybody wearing one of those t-shirts that is doing what Jesus would do. Because Jesus would not turn stones into bread. He would not turn men into resources. You see, you've been talking about religion, but you don't know what it's all about. You want kings to rule over you. You want benevolent kings like Charles II, who had been exiled. They want him back. You know what they called Charles II? I think it was Charles II. They called him Good Time Charlie, because he knew he had to tread with a light foot. Well, later kings, not such a light foot. The problem is, your neighbors are kings now in the democracy, and they want to rule over you. And they want to take from the rich so that you can have. Very dangerous, very dangerous, very covetous way to approach the needs of life. And to tell you the truth, through covetousness, you will be made merchandise of. The Bible tells us that. They're saying, through socialism, you will become subject. You see, people who see the problems in the world today, they say, oh, but we don't want to have anything to do with religion. But they do. Because religion is how you take care of the needy. And we're going to explore this. We're going to... Now, that, that is iconoclastic. A lot of people aren't going to like that. Wait till we start talking about worship. But anyway, this day in history, other things happened. James Cook sailed on his first voyage to discover many things, including the Society Islands, what they call the Society Islands in New Zealand and Western Australia. But... One other thing that happened on this day in history, in 1787, the Constitutional Convention was convened in Philadelphia with 55 delegates delegates as a quorum to compose the Constitution of the United States of America. At least that's what it says in one historical account. They actually were not there to compose a constitution. They were to come up with some ideas to improve the Articles of Confederation and they scrapped the whole thing and started anew and created this constitution of the United States, brought it back. They had no authority to do that. As a matter of fact, it it upset quite a few people that they even considered doing it. But they did it. This constitutional convention met uh, at the State House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And these 55 delegates in convention began to mull over what they thought they needed to do. Now, 12 of the the 13 states, and that's what the colonies were now. They weren't colonies. They were states. They were independent governments. They had articles of confederation, but they were independent governments. They were not subject to anything, but they were independent governments. Now, Rhode Island, didn't send any delegates to the convention. The Constitution uh, was drafted uh, by 1787, and the Constitution became law, according to some historians, on June 24, 1788, after two-thirds of the states ratified it. Not all the states had ratified the Constitution by April 30th, when in 1789, when George Washington became the first president of the United States. That actually was an illegal act. Because all those states had already signed an agreement that they would not alter the Articles of Confederation unless they had unanimous agreement. 
unanimous. They didn't have that with the Constitution. As a matter of fact, people think that we the people at the beginning of that Constitution refers to them. And if you read our series in, in the book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, or listen to the audios, you will see very clearly that the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled more than once that the people were not a party to the Constitution. So if you weren't a party to the Constitution, then we, the people, doesn't refer to you. You're not a party. Period. That's not you. At least that was not you at the time. That was the people who signed up to be senators, congressmen, and employees of the United States. And we've gone over this, and we're not going to dwell on this, but the fact is, you've got a lot of misconceptions. You don't want to have anything to do with religion, but yet your government today is steeped in religion, steeped in faith. And we're going to look at this, and we're going to prove these outlandish, iconoclastic statements before we're done with this series. And we're going to go over and repeat some of these things, just like I'm doing now about the Constitution, so that you would understand that everything is connected. That you can't throw out, I don't want to talk about religion, I just want to solve our problems in government. Can't do that. Impossible. Because your government is a religious institution. It requires your faith. It requires your allegiance. It provides for the needy of your society, which that is what religion is defined as. And we'll show you that. It was defined as that in Bouvier's Law Dictionary. It's how you take care of the needy of your society. And we'll show you. And Bouvier's is what they used to interpret the Constitution. And at that time, there was no social welfare. Not really. Even your public schools were only partially supported. And they were in the minority of the sources of education in America in those early days. As a matter of fact, public education was in the minority of the education process of the people of America until after the 1900s. It was after the 1900s that public school began to become more predominant. And it actually took until the 50s until it was pervasive. And even now, your private schools are actually more like the public schools and often must carry the same curriculum that has been meddled with so that you will actually think that we the people has to do with you. Unfortunately, because of other things you have chosen to do, the Constitution, it says the Constitution is preserved I'm quoting here, for all the view of the National Archives in Washington, D.C. But it says the structure of that document has not changed since it was written. But amendments have provided the flexibility necessary to meet changing circumstances. What changing circumstances? Your relationship to that government. You are now we the people. But you're we the people and a whole lot else. (laughs) We the people and we the corporations and we the treaties and we the leagues. You're bound. Hook, line, and sinker. Because you don't understand history and you don't understand how law works. 
one of the people that I'm responding to with this broadcast also, uh, like I said, is very much against the Roman church, and I understand that. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the Roman church, for sure. It certainly isn't doing what Christ said. Neither are all the Protestant churches doing what Christ said. But on this day in history, in 1793, in Baltimore, Maryland, very interesting, Baltimore, whole avenue we could talk on that, Father Stephen Theodore uh, Baden became the first Catholic priest to be ordained in the United States. That was in 1793. They've been around for a long time. And, and we should connect the dots there. And we will when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about some really controversial issues here. What is religion? What is worship? What is the problem in the world today? And and how can we solve those problems? Edmund Burke said, The true danger is when liberty is nibbled away for expedience and by parts. The idea that we understand already, that we already know, that the parameters that were taught us as a child are true, is very dangerous. We assume we already know. And and Jesus says that we have to become like little children, willing to learn anew, look at all things anew. To orient ourselves in this cosmic chain of history we find ourselves in. We we think, oh, well, I know the Constitution. I read the Constitution. One of the things the fellow wrote me, he says, I know about Corbin. No, he doesn't. He goes on and explains it based on typical everyday catechisms. He doesn't know what Corbin was. Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. And he is actually a practicer of the Corbin of the Pharisees. And we will show you that before we're done. He actually worships at pagan altars. But he doesn't think of it in those terms. But we will show you that. We are going to be very iconoclastic in this series. We're going to look at things really differently. You are influenced by so many things. Your education. What your parents told you. What your school teachers told you. What the media tells you. You know, on this day in history again, the first movie tone news was shown in the Sam Harris Theater in New York City. And a new media, a new power was released in the world. Media news that tells you, oh, this is this and this is this, you became extremely distracted by that believing what you were hearing. Sometimes it was true. Sometimes it wasn't. And sometimes it edged you away from understanding. It was on this day in history in 1925 that John T. Scopes was indicted in Tennessee for teaching Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. And then... What became of that trial? 
You see, our ideas are constantly being reshaped. Nibble, nibble. Even on this day in history, in 1935, Babe Ruth hit the 714th and final home run of his career in, for the Boston Braves in a game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. What does that have to do with anything? Sports, the media, TV, tremendous distraction. I saw something somebody sent my wife on Facebook, showed these guys all watching a game, and they're all excited, and they're reaching over the seats in front of them, and everybody's yelling, and they're reaching their arms out, and they're screaming. It says... Wouldn't it be, it said something to the effect, wouldn't this be wonderful if people could get this enthusiastic about something that actually really mattered? Unfortunately, they can't. They are like that frog being lowered in the warm water, raising the temperature a little at a little, little, so they never jump. The nibble, nibble. Change, little change. And then once you get to the point where your whole thinking is regulated by uh, movie tone and media and, and what you were taught and what you were told, and then somebody comes along and says, what you believe is not true. He's a threat to everything that you think you stand for. But hear me out. Follow what I'm saying. We don't say this without some proof and some evidence, but listen in your spirit. Now, both of these people that were writing me recently, and we will refer to them before we're done with this whole series, uh, not by name necessarily, but they want to be charitable. They want to help others. They want this thing in them is calling them to be these Christian charitable people. But you need to look at the whole picture of what you're doing and what has already been done to you. Because I know many of you are deceived. Many of you have been led away, led down the primrose path in these explorations to strange lands. And you wake up and you say, something's wrong. And you want to change. But you don't know where to begin. You need to orient yourself. Find out how you got to where you are. Where you are at in relationship to liberty. Where God wants you to be. At liberty under Him. That's the kingdom of God. The right to be ruled by God. You don't have that right right now. You've given power to other men to be gods over you. You don't even know how you did that in many cases. And that's why we had to write one book on that, another book showing you how this has been a constant battle throughout the ages, and another book showing you how to turn around and go the other way. And then you have to actually turn around and go the other way. Or you can't get there from here to the land of liberty, to the home of the brave and the free. You don't live there now. You're enslaved. But you're enslaved more to your ideas that you think are right and are not. Mark Twain said it's not so much what you know, but it's what you know that just ain't so that gets you into trouble. 
Another erosion that just came up this last week, there was a vote, and I don't know how it turned out, but there was a fellow named Jason Lee, whose statue is in the uh, uh, statutory hall in the nation's capital. Each state can put two people in that hall, their statue. And uh, if you go back in history in 1831, uh, there was an Indian by the name of He Oaks Ticken, who was an Esperance Indian, who had journeyed 3,000 miles afoot in a quest for the Book of Heaven, which I assume is the Bible. Uh, he showed up unannounced at the doorstep of General Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, who had been all the way out and had been saved by a Nespers lady. Uh, the Nespers found them, they were in such bad shape, they couldn't hardly lift their arms. They, they were just absolutely devastated by traveling through the forest and the mountains because there had been no game. And it was an arduous trek, and they were in really rough shape. And if the Indians had decided just to club them in the head and throw them over a cliff, they could have easily done it at this point. But there was an Indian woman there who pleaded that they don't do this. Why? Because a missionary had helped her out. A Christian family had helped her out when she had been captured by other Indians, taken captive and then escaped, and then was uh, picked up in a... uh, in her dire straits by a Christian family and missionaries who nursed her back to health and set her free. And she said that act of kindness, we need to have that same kindness towards these men. And they did. And so Lewis and Clark lived <laughs> to tell the tale. <laughs> but we don't know that. Most people don't know why did Lewis and Clark succeed at this monumental task? It was probably... No single item played more importance in their survival and success than an air rifle that they had with them. That's right, an air rifle, like a BB gun, air rifle. You pump it up and shoot it. They had one with them. And uh, they pumped it up. It took like 1,500 pumps to get it pumped up. But then you could put in 20 balls, lead balls, and fire them one after another, and they would go right through a three-quarter inch plank, making no smoke, no real loud sound. Everywhere they went, they gave a demonstration of that rifle. It it awed the natives. It would be like coming with a ray gun today. These guys were like from another planet. Some of the Indians had seen, you know, gunpowder guns where you shoot it once and then you got to ram it and then put powder into it and then put a ball down it and then then cock it and put a little powder in there and then fire your flintlock and hope it fires and actually goes somewhere and kills something. Here's a guy going up, boom, 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 one after another. 20 men, if they had 20 rifles like that, they were like, you know, showing up at the, uh, at some ancient battle with machine guns and artillery. And, uh, would be impressive. But anyway. So, 
whatever it was that inspired Heo Tekken, the Nespers Indian, to make this 3,000-mile trek for the Book of Heaven, he came and showed up at General Clark's doorstep. Well, the man who ended up responding to this request was a man by the name of Jason Lee. And he uh, pioneered one of the greatest mission movements in all of history. Uh, by re- according to what some people write, by every right, by every right of peaceful conquest, the portrait of Jason Lee should adorn the halls of the Capitol building in our state as long as those Capitol buildings stand. That's at least one man referenced this Jason Lee. You don't even know who he is, most people. This is in the state of Oregon. And they want to replace his statue. Now, there was a bill actually up in the state of Oregon to replace his statue at this uh, statutory hall in the National Capitol with, uh, believe it or not, uh, former Governor and Senator Mark Hatfield, who was uh, indicted on ethics charges. He was referred to as St. Mark because he, he, at times because he, he seemed to be so bipartisan in, in his approach. But, you know, his wife took $50,000 from an arms dealer during a time when Mark Hadfield uh, was voting on um, spending federal money that would have improved the, uh, the business of the arms dealer. And he failed to mention that. And ethics, you know, she was in the real estate business, but somehow this guy felt he could pay her $50,000 or something. But I think he was probably generally a good guy, but he wasn't like Jason Lee. And Jason Lee was key to opening the, the trail that blazed the way for pioneers to come to Oregon and, and many other things that he did. But this interest in this book of heaven they wanted to know about, and we have called it the Bible today, there was a considerable movement when to stop the printing of Bibles, stop people from reading the Bibles. This was causing a lot of trouble back in the days of Wycliffe and Tyndale. And then this printing press comes along, and they could actually print the Bible. The movable type was the key to the printing press. They had been printing for years. But movable type, it allowed people to print all kinds of books. And there was other innovations in making of paper because, actually, because of the spinning wheel and then the, and the spinning jenny. But all those things aside, the point was Bibles were showing up everywhere. And people were losing power because the Bible is about empowering you to be the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, which is where that phrase comes from, from the White Club Bible. That's what the Bible is about. It's about government. It only mentions religion about four times in the whole Bible. At least the word we translate into religion, which we will look at. The Bible is about government. It's about governments that rule over people, exercise authority, make slaves of people, and it's about governments that set you free. Moses taught a government that sets you free. Abraham actually did the same thing, and Jesus certainly did the same thing. But there's another government that through covetousness will make merchandise of you. 
another form of government. Both of those governments exercise religion. One is based on faith, hope, and charity, and the other is based on force. And until John the Baptist, most of the people were following the one that was based on force, which is including Herod and Augustus Caesar. And freedom was disappearing rapidly in the Pax Romana, the new world order of Rome. And history is repeating itself. And we're going to show you the solution. And in order to do that, we're going to have to define the word religion. Because the word we see in the New Testament, religion, is threskia in the Greek. And people have a lot of distorted ideas about what that word means. And you need to understand that word so that you don't say, I want to solve the problems of America, but I don't want to talk about religion. I've had people... Uh, that have big news media say that, that you know they want to publish one of our books, Contracts, Covenants. Oh no, actually the one they want to publish is uh, Covenants of the Gods. But the people in the Tea Party aren't interested in religion. <laughs> yeah, I have to laugh because they're all members of a religion, and that's the United States federal government. That's a religion. According to the definition of Threskia, it's a religion. It is the religion of the world. It didn't used to be, but it is today. Because, not because they changed the Constitution, but because you changed your relationship with the institution that the Constitution allowed to be created. You think by returning to the Constitution, you will be saved. Not so, and we'll show you why. And we actually have shown you why if you if you if you examine the series contracts, covenants, and constitutions. So anyway, a uh, few basic items: love conquers all, turns evil to good. Christians should not be plowing their neighbor's heart, compelling their neighbors to do things their way. False Christianity has always done this. This is why there were inquisitions. This is why they were compelling people to do certain things. But if you think it's okay to force your neighbor to do something that you want done, then it's okay for your neighbor to force you to do something they want done. You have to turn around from that. Christ did not come to force you to do what is right. He came to give you the choice to do what is right. And you're not saved by that offer unless you change. Rome was not built in a day. It was built brick upon brick. The kingdom is built stone upon stone. And we'll explain that as we go through this. A Christian needs to put on the full armor of God and not just bits and pieces that make him feel good. It's not about seeking your self-righteousness. It's about seeking the righteousness of God. And we need to understand what the righteousness of God really is. And most people don't do that. So I've written an article... Uh, on pure religion. It's on our website. And I, I wrote it a long time ago, but we've been revamping it. 
And I haven't even announced it to our uh, contact ministers who are all across the country. You can find them at um, thelivingnetwork.org or on our website at hisholychurch.org and the Living Network. And join up and find those contact ministers. They're in the business of connecting you with other people seeking the kingdom of God, the right to be ruled by God, and the righteousness of God. And you're going to need other people to do this. You, you can't do this as a lone wolf. You can run around and escape for a while, but you're being a foolish virgin. You need to come together with the intent of caring about your neighbor's rights as much as you care about your own. If you don't do that, you're toast. You can forget it. You're not going to succeed. You can try. Have at it. So anyway, the the article starts off, and I, I was going to say, I've changed it again. I've been changing it regularly. They proofread it. And actually, I was going through it last night, and I found three or four mistakes, you know, typos that they had missed. <laughs> so I fixed them, and then next thing you know, I'm adding to it. And then I woke up this morning, about 5.30 or so, and I began to change it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Because this is a really important issue that you understand what religion really is, because most people don't. And, and I quote in, in the first few uh, paragraphs, I, I quote Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride, who says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And, of course, that's what people use this word religion, and they don't know really what it means. And when Inigo Montoya was using that, concerning Vecini using the word inconceivable, he was right, because he kept seeing things happening that he thought was inconceivable, but they were happening just the same. And the fact is, is most people think it's inconceivable that they don't know what religion means. And the fact is that I can show you in dictionaries how the evolution of that word has changed the meaning of that word on a regular basis. If we go to Bouvier's, John Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1856 Law Dictionary, which was a dictionary that was connected to the interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, we see the beginning of his definition of religion is real piety. Piety has to do with duty. In practices consisting in the performance of all known duties to God and our fellow men. Duties to God and our fellow men. What is that? Love God, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's our duties. So the practice of doing that is religion. How do you do that? How do you fulfill your duties to God and your fellow men? Now, a lot of people want to be atheists. And, of course, the Christians were accused of being atheists. So, atheists, I mean, really don't know squat of what they're, they're saying. They can go ahead and be their, their imaginary atheists. It's just a way of lording it over all the other people who believe in God, but then don't really believe in God in their actions. They just, in their head. They make up a version of God in their head, and they believe in that version of God. They don't actually believe in God. If you actually believed in the God of creation, you'd be a creator yourself. You wouldn't be a blood-sucking socialist. 
No socialists, all socialists are atheists. They don't really believe in God. They believe in maybe the image of God. That's why you'll find amongst many atheists, they are also socialists. At least they admit it. The other socialists who say they believe in God, bunk, they don't. They believe in taking life, life from their neighbors. They believe in coveting their neighbor's goods. Forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. That's what socialists believe. And it doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, political. I'm just talking about principles here. Anyway, the second part of his definition goes on to say, there are many actions which cannot be regulated by human laws, and many duties are imposed by religion, there's that word again, calculated to promote the happiness of society. Calculated to promote the happiness of society. In bliss? Or what are they talking about? Besides, there is an infinite number of actions which, though punishable by society, may be concealed from men and which the magistrate cannot punish. In these cases, men are restrained by the knowledge that nothing can be hidden from the eyes of the sovereign intelligent being, that the soul never dies that there is a state of future reward and punishment. In fact, that the most secret crimes will be punished. True religion then offers succor to the feeble consolation of the unfortunate and fills the wicked with dread. That's the second definition. The first was to help your fellow man and to love God. But, is that really the religion they talk about in the Bible? What is that original word? How does it work? This is what we're going to be discussing, and we're going to show you that you have been under a strong delusion for a long time when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God and the religion of the kingdom of God as opposed to the religion of the world. That's the fact, is the religion of the world is different than the religion of the kingdom of God, and that's because the world is something that is not a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't mean the planet. He meant the constitutional order and system of government. That's what that word actually means in the Greek. And he was saying it to who? Pontius Pilate, the chief financial officer and procurator of Rome in Judea. He was saying, my kingdom's not of your constitutional order or system of government. My kingdom is separate. I don't have any agreements, any treaties, any leagues with you. Thou sayest that I am a king. And he was a king. And his kingdom had no connection with the Roman Empire. No nexus. They had no right to judge him. And Pontius Pilate washed his hands of the judgment. He did not judge Jesus or condemn him. Unfortunately, he gave the power to the Sanhedrin to decide, look, you can kill Jesus or you can kill Jesus Barabbas, who was a sworn enemy of the Pharisees and had sworn to kill them. He thought for sure they would have Barabbas executed. But money was more important to them. And Jesus had overthrown their lucrative, comfortable position as rulers of the Social Security Welfare Fund. (laughs) That's right. That's what they were doing. They had a tremendous source of income from a welfare fund called Corbin that that Herod had gotten thousands and thousands of people to sign up for all across the Roman Empire. They actually had more than one of these systems. One was at the Temple of Roma and the other one was at the Temple in Jerusalem. But it its branch offices were in every synagogue throughout Judea. Every synagogue of Herod and his ministers. And you signed up, got baptized, had to pay in, and then you could obtain benefits if you were blinded, if you became indigent, whatever. You could go to the synagogue and get benefits. You have to understand that those buildings, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Roma built by Herod also, with a statue of Roma, the god Roma, in that temple, These temples were government buildings. These were welfare offices. These were where you went to get benefits. They had other significance too. You prayed and applied for benefits at these temples and they had treasuries. They compelled the offerings of Corbin once you signed up. And there was a transition period. And if you read in Roman history, I mean, read the actual Roman history, you'll see when they were setting up temples, people would come down to the temple when they were about to set the first cornerstone. And they would, like, throw a golden nugget on the ground. And then they would set that 
cornerstone on that golden nugget. They were depositing their wealth in that place, in that temple. Why? Because, and they would give free will offerings to build this temple. The temple at Ephesus had offerings from 127 different countries to build it and to support its original capital in the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean. These are government buildings. These temples are government buildings supported often by taxes. Now, originally in Rome, they were supported by free will offerings. And then in the case of Janus and a few of the other temples, they actually had free will offerings. But they accounted the offering as an investment. They were investment temples. Then they would send out expeditionary forces to open a mine or a trade route or harbor and then charge an excise for the use of the harbor, that money would come back in and pay you dividends. That's what they were doing in these temples. You know, there were investment temples and then there were charitable temples where you just gave charity. Originally, most of the charity was handled on a local basis, but they knew because... Armies would come and and large groups of thugs would come and what have you and calamities would come that they needed to come together and form literally an assurance pool where they gathered together in case there was a catastrophic event, fire, famine, flood in a particular area where it was totally devastated. There was a network of people that allowed you to give your free will offerings back to that one little congregation that was absolutely devastated. In order to do this, you had to have a network. You had to have... And what they did was 10 families, 10 or 12 families would gather together and pick a minister whose job was to be the coordinator for the charity of the 10, 12 families. Not only amongst themselves, but also to the other hundred families in ten other groups or nine other groups, like themselves, that also picked ministers. He got to know those ministers and tried to get to know some of those people and how they operated. And if they had a devastating event and illnesses or sickness or flood or fire or invasion, they had a way in which to help those families out. This was a form of government that has been the most predominant form of government throughout man's history and most people graduating from public school haven't got a clue about that form of government. They're not taught that. They're not told about it. It's the way Israel operated. It's the way the Teutons operated. It's the way most people operated in Europe for a thousand years before the Inquisition started. But they became so affluent in this system that they became complacent about the next valley. And once once men learned the art of massing gigantic armies, putting them in the fields and supplying them, they simply went from valley to valley to valley and took each valley. And anyone who did not conform to their brand of religion in government were annihilated.
Why do I say religion in government? Because this this was the new way. Now, in the previous show, we we defined, according to blacks, their first definition of religion had to do with this practice consisting in the performance of all known duties to God and our fellow men. So you had to do both. Isn't that what Christ says? Love God, who is a giver of life. So therefore, you have to be a giver of life because you would love to give life just like God does because you love God. And your fellow man. You have to care about your fellow man as much as you care about yourself. You have to care about his rights. You've got to care about his property rights, his children, his family, as much as you care about your own. Got a different kind of society than we see today. Where people care about what they get, what they want, more than they care about their neighbor. And they're willing to take from their neighbor so that they can make sure they have enough. You see, two different spirits here. They cannot coexist within the same system. They are going to create different systems and different results. One will bear fruit. The other one will not. It will bear iniquity. The second definition talks about the sovereignty of God over our souls after death. Of course, Jesus said the kingdom of God is for the living, not for the dead. And that's not really... He didn't come to get you to do what's right out of fear. He came to get you to do what's right out of love. The third definition of religion in this Blacks, uh, not Blacks, but John Bovier's 1856 Law Dictionary, and you can you can go listen to the first show again and recordings if you didn't get it. But the third definition, he talks about what Montesquieu says of a prince applies equally to an individual. A prince, says he, who loves religion is a lion which yields to the hand that caresses him and to the voice which renders him tame. He who fears religion and baits it is like a wild beast which gnaws the chain which restrains it from falling on those within its reach. He who has no religion is like a terrible animal which feels no liberty except when it devours its victim or tears them in pieces. He goes on to, and he was simply quoting in in that process, but this particular third definition goes on to say, But religion can be useful to a man only when it is pure. The Constitution of the United States has therefore wisely provided that it should never be united with the state. And they make reference to religious test theocracies. But the fact is, is religion isn't necessarily what you believe, but it's the process by which you fulfill your duties to God and men. And your duty is to love them. Love the ways of God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, this reference in this this third thing of the Constitution of the United States has therefore wisely provided that it should never be united with the state. Have we, re- have we united our duty to men to government? 
99% of all charity in America at the beginning was in the hands of the people which they often function through the churches but if the people chose not to give to the church the church had nothing to give to the people when there was need and congregations were often smaller and more intimate but if you had a problem lost your job, didn't have enough food, whatever. You went to church. Now you go to the government. So one of the duties of the church, which was that duty to your fellow man, is no longer fulfilled by the church. It's now fulfilled by the government. So therefore, according to that understanding alone, we can see that the Constitution of the United States supposedly prohibiting any restriction on the practice of religion has offered a religion of its own. You can fulfill your duties to your fellow man through government. But unfortunately, that would be going against Christ who said you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other because when they give you benefits now from the United States government or the states or the counties, they're giving you what they took away from your neighbor. Herod thought that was okay. Cain thought that was okay. Nimrod thought that was okay. The wicked Pharaoh thought that was okay. But Christ said that's not okay. So, are you a follower of Christ? Or not. Because you're not doing what he said. You're going to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other, and applying, praying to them for benefits. That's the Corbin of the Pharisees. That's what they did. So in my article on religion, I asked, uh, does your religion include a practice consisting in the performance of all known duties to God and your fellow men? No. Your churches don't take care of the social welfare needs of your neighbor. You send them to the government. They have now taken over your job as an institution of religion. So what are you an institution of? You're a a feel-good institution. No wonder people don't want to talk about religion who want to talk about freedom. I understand that. That's not religion, though. That's superstition. That's uh, patty cake. I don't know what it is, but it isn't religion. They're not doing pure religion. They're not taking care of the needy of their society. And they're certainly not unspotted by the world, the constitutional orders and systems of government of men, which were supposedly instituted to capture lawbreakers. And protect us from foreign invasion. Instead, now they're in the religion business. Of providing for the health, education, and welfare of the needy of their society. Except they don't do it by charity. So if you don't want to address this, then you you don't want to address the fact that you're already practicing religion with a glock. With a sword. 
and with ruling over your neighbor and forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. What you paid in to Social Security is gone. Nada. It's gone. It's in the hole. You're operating in the red. There's not zero in there. There's negative numbers in there. In order for you to get any benefit, you must send men out with guns and force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare unless you want to be free. If you want to be free, do what Moses said. Pay your tally of bricks, but glean in the field at night for your benefits. In other words, you're going to have to start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. If you will not do that, you will not be free. Period. That's it. No other alternative. So you better talk about religion if you want to be free because the religion you are practicing has brought you into bondage. Because you thought it was okay to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. It's okay if he forces you to contribute to his welfare. And guess what? you got a lot more neighbors than you thought. And a lot of them are lazy, no good for nothing, selfish socialists who want to take from you and have every right to do so because you said it was okay to take from your neighbor to provide for you in a social welfare system of Corbin, designed after that of Herod the Great. You aren't doing what Christ said. And therefore, you are not operating according to the perfect law of liberty. I don't know what you're doing in your churches. Actually, I do, and we'll talk about that. I go on to ask, do you believe in the religion of Jesus Christ taught? <laughs> Loving your neighbor as yourself. Not coveting. Caring for one another. Do you believe in that? Through faith, open charity? In the perfect law of liberty, as Paul says? Or do you believe in forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare by hiring men with guns to compel their offerings to fill your treasuries, which are empty anyway? Because the rulers that you chose in your rejection of God, the voice of the people chose Saul. It took a little while before they bankrupted the system. But they chose Saul. You chose somebody else. You rejected God, chose somebody to rule over you and your neighbor, and they've bankrupted you. They've spent the money on themselves. They've given themselves raises. They made themselves millionaires. They made deals with oil sheiks and what have you so that they would become fabulously wealthy. And bankers, they made them wealthy. And the bankers made them wealthy. And you have all become poor. Because you haven't been listening to Christ. You've been listening to preachers that have been preaching you a strong delusion. And you call it religion. But that isn't what religion is. Religion, according to Bovier's, is taking care of the needs of your neighbor. And loving God's ways of giving life. Not taking life from others. Not coveting. Does your religion profess a belief in God or profess your desire to be God? Ah. 
I should say, be gods. I think I'll change that in, in, on the article. To honestly answer this question, we need to understand what a god is. What is a god? A god is a ruling judge. Because Paul says there are gods many. So, if there are gods many, who is he talking about? He was talking about ruling judges. We have an article on that. There are gods many. And uh, and most people don't realize that. What he, they're talking about is ruling judges. That word God, or gods, same word. Who's the ruling judge of your life? Who can exercise authority and tell you what is good and evil? Is it the God of heaven or is it gods of earth? And how did they get such power? They got such power because you gave them such power and you were again entangled in the beggarly elements of bondage. The elements of the world. The elements of these constitutional orders and systems of government that bring you back into bondage because you're willing to put your neighbor in bondage and force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare in impure religion. In an impure system that compels your neighbor to give up his coat so that you can have one. And you think that's good because you think you should have a coat. You see the poor out there. Maybe you've got enough coat. You see the poor out there. And that poor doesn't have a coat, doesn't have food, doesn't have enough water to drink. And you say, look at these other people are rich. Let's take from them and force them to give to these poor. You've opened a Pandora's box. You can take your coat and give to them. You can take your water and give to them. But you cannot take your neighbors and force them to give to the needy. Once you've opened that door, they can force you. You, you have now com- become compatible with Satan himself. And now you become part of the menu of Satan. He will devour you. The whole Proverbs that talks about having one purse is not the net spread before the bird, but he's captured just the same. You lurk privately for the blood of your neighbor so that you can be well off and others can be well off. It is your blood that will be taken because you have coveted your neighbor's goods and therefore you become merchandise, a human resource. We've tried to figure out and struggled with this for some time and a lot this week of how do we impart this to people that their religion is contrary to what Christ taught as religion and religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. I mean, it's right there. And so we've done word studies on this and we're going we're gonna to look at these. Do you believe in Jesus and the Father? Do you know the Father or Jesus? Do you know what they were saying? Do you know what they were teaching us through all the prophets? You've become like Pharaoh. Except you've done it in a democracy. Religious doctrines are often created with Complex eschatologies and theologies composed of mental mysteries to hide the personal sin that results from straying from the basics of real faith. 
Real faith is to live by faith. Trust that God will put it upon the heart of your neighbor to help you out when you need help. How do you add to that? You cast your bread upon the waters in hopes that it comes back to you. You you take care of the needy. You go out there and you give freely in hopes that others will give freely to you. This is the only way to liberty. If you do, will not address the religion that you are practicing now through your social welfare systems in whatever country you're in, social insurance or social security or whatever they call it in your country, if you will not address that religion and start to practice a religion based on the perfect law of liberty through faith, hope, and charity, you will not be free. And you should not be free. You should be under tribute. And you should remain under tribute. Are you doing the will of the Father? Are you, are you bludgeoning your neighbor through the agency of governments you create? And give the power to force your neighbor's contributions so that you will be secure, socially secure. It's that simple. This is not rocket science. But you imagine you know what religion means. Religion, that's, that's, that's singing in church. And uh, that's, you know, uh, you know, you know, those Jehovah Witnesses, they think Jesus wasn't even dead on a cross. They think he's on a stake. Well, they're, they're a bunch of, they're not even real Christians. Or they're, they're Catholics. That's a cult. We're going to take a look at the word cult. What, what, that doesn't have anything to do with religion. Religion has to do with fulfilling your duty to God and your fellow men. It doesn't have anything to do with your eschatologies and theologies and and religious doctrines. I am always shocked when I re- read the religious doctrines of modern churches. You got some of them go on and on and on and on and on, and hardly even mention anything Christ said. But they got their doctrines. Got to have your doctrine right. We don't have any doctrine except what Christ said. Now, we, we do a lot of campfire talk and articles and books about what we think that means, what he said. Then you can take it or leave it. Because that isn't our doctrine. That's our opinion as to what his doctrine is. It's his church. It's not my church. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a part of what we're doing. We're, we're not a corporate organization of men. We may be a corporate organization of Christ, but Christ is the one that kicks you out and lets you in. I may decide I don't want to fellowship with you, but then you just go fellowship with somebody else. And what is fellowship? Isn't that taking care of the needs of one another, caring about one another? That's religion. Now, either your religion is based on faith, hope, and charity and love, or your religion is based on forcing your neighbor to take care of your needs. 
That's simple. That's, those are the only two religions. I don't care about all the other stuff. And when you're talking religion, that's all it is. Are you doing this the way God does it? Are you doing this, taking care of the needs of your neighbor the way Cain does it? Because Cain had to go out of the presence of God to do his thing. Same with Nimrod. Jesus points out the only way to really know if someone knows the Father or the Son is by the works they do. The fruit of their lives. And you read in John 10:38, but if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye know that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. In Titus 1:16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good works. Retro, uh, reprobate. That's how you know. Not because they said that they were saved, but by what they're doing. And we're going to take a look at what they're doing when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're finding out what religion is and what religion is not. And we're finding in places in the Bible where they talk about religion, most of the time they're talking about it in a bad sense. Only once do they really talk about it in a good sense. But religion has to do with what you actually do. They talk about it, always defining it with this word ritual, although we don't see that in Bovies, we see this idea that somehow it has to do with your rituals and ceremonies. But your rituals and ceremonies are really only what you do. And that doing should be service. And we're going to show you, no matter how you approach this word religion, that's where we keep coming back to. In Titus 1.16 we see, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. What are they talking about? Good works. And we're always told, Oh, don't, don't even look at works. Uh, you're saved by faith. Don't, don't go the works thing. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. You just believe and you're saved. No. That's ridiculous. That's satanic. Yeah, you're saved by faith. But that's like telling the prodigal son, just just think about going home and you'll be there. No, he had to actually start home and come to his father and say, Father, I wish to be a servant in your house. What? Servant? That's works. Now, he didn't do the works yet, and he was already forgiven. So, yeah, he's saved by grace. But he's got to turn around and go back the other way. You guys aren't turning around. You're still praying to benefactors who exercise authority. You're not doing anything to return to the service in your father's house. As a matter of fact, you're actually, most of you who are claiming to be Christians are going the other way. Many of you are voting 
that those benefactors who exercise authority exercise more authority to get you more benefits. Completely the opposite of what Christ said to do. You can't be going away from Christ and tell me you believe in Christ and expect me to believe you. You're a reprobate. And you're and what you're doing shows me you're a reprobate. That's why I say you cannot be a Christian and a socialist. You cannot be coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority one over the other and tell me that you're following Christ, which is what a Christian is, someone who is seeking Christ, following after Christ, believes in what Christ said. You can't. It just it doesn't work. In James 2.20 it says, But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? you got to do something. Just because if you have faith, why would I even have to bring this up? You don't have faith in what Christ said. You have faith in what some religious zealot told you. Because it sounded good. It said you don't have to do anything. Just believe you're saved. Presto bingo, you're saved. Now you can just go do your own thing and do, you know... Whatever. Bunk. That's satanic. That's evil. You're, you're licensing sin with your thoughts. Revelation 2 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars who have you found to be a liar who say they are apostles ambassadors who say they are Christians and are liars you know anybody like that do you pray to them for benefits for your welfare apply pray what's the difference Oh, I had a minister tell me, oh, applying is not the same as praying. Yeah, it is. You're just, you're just fogging up your brain so that you don't even think. Because you don't want to go there. You don't want to see the truth. You want to imagine that you already know the truth. You remain blind. Matthew 7.16 You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? You know, do you get your benefits from men who love you or men who exercise authority one over the other? Matthew 7.20 Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 21.43 Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth fruit thereof. The kingdom was already there. When Christ Christ arrived, the kingdom was already there. Because he says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you guys. I'm going to give it to others who will bear fruit. And he says, it is my pleasure to appoint unto you the little flock a kingdom. And then later on he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. And he qualifies that with saying, but you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who where men call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. You're not to be that way. But now you go to church on Sunday or Sabbath, but the rest of the week you are that way. You go to men who 
call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other to provide you with the needs that you have. And that's the way you provide the needs of your fellow men. In a religion based on force. Not like John the Baptist, who's based on charity. Not like Paul talks about, based on charity. Not what Peter talks about. Not what Christ talks about. You covet your neighbor's goods through the agents of your social estate. And I can't do anything about that. You're in that, you signed up. I can't unsign you up. But I can tell you this, if you turn around and repent and go the other way, a door will be opened to you that you may be free again under God. But you have to turn around first. You have to head back to be a servant in your father's house. This is what we're doing at the Living Network. What what I'm preaching to do, they're not all doing it, is to turn around, repent, start caring for the needs of one another. And you say, well, we got together and there were no needs. So we all went home. You tell me you can't find anybody in the world that needs? You should be casting your bread upon the waters, helping out the needy in your community. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in another show probably. And you need to turn around. You need to start going the other way. You need to repent and then get baptized. Because right now, you, the baptism you got now, that you're just all wet. You're not anywhere close to what Christ said. So, because I, I can tell that because I know by your fruits. This is why the world is in the trouble that it's in. Because your religion doesn't bear fruit. Your religion divides communities and allows men to, you know, here's a statistic for you. There's accusations of rape coming out of your military all the time. And so guys say, ah, that's what will happen when you put women in uniform in the military. You're going to end up getting them raped by their fellow soldiers. Well, guess what, folks? Most of those rapes, they're not women getting raped. They're men getting raped. That's that's government statistics. Most of the rapes in the military are men raping men. It isn't because you put women in the military, which I agree. Women should not be in combat in the military. There's a lot of things that women can do. but it And the reason isn't anything against women. It's just, it's not fair. It's not right. You know, the women should be in the military, but not in combat situations, because the men will play favorites, and they'll get their buddies killed. It's just... It's just, it's just human nature. And there's nothing you can do about it. Women should not be in combat in the military. But the rapes don't have to do with most of the rapes. Most of the rapes is not men on women. It's men on men. Most of the deaths in your men overseas is not from the enemy. It's suicide. This is the fruits of what you have done. And it's all based on your religion because you have given the power of religion to your government. Your government, the men of your government who exercise authority one over the other, are now the major religion in America today. The priests of your religion is your social welfare officers. 
that that's the ones who provide you with the benefits. They take from the treasury of Corbin that is built up by the compelled offerings of the people and they distribute them to help the needy. But unfortunately, they help many of the needy be more iniquitous, be more slothful, to be more promiscuous, and have children after children by different husbands and no father in the household, even though we know that if single parents... You know, it's the breakdown of the family. You don't need family. I had somebody i known since he was a little kid. He's had, uh, I think, five children already. He's on his sixth or so now. Not with his original wife. I think he's gone through three wives now. And he said, someone pointed out that he should not be so irresponsible and keep punching out these children that you're not taking care of. What do you mean I'm taking, I'm taking care of them? I paid child support. But child support doesn't pay for half of the cost of the care of that child. Now, paying for all the medical and all the other welfare and the food stamps and all that stuff. He's just token child support. Everybody else has to pay for that. And he's damaging the children. Damaging the wife. He's not a family. God instituted the family. He's not a family. And he doesn't have to be. He's got the government. Government is their sugar daddy. The government's going to take care of them. The government's going to provide them with health care and medical and education and everything else. You don't have to worry about that. You don't need no family. You got government. You got your sugar daddy. But Jesus said, call no man on earth dad. No man on earth father. And the fellow who is so much against the Catholic Church, he keeps pointing out, they even call their priest father. Yeah, but who's your father? Who's your sugar daddy? Who's your benefactor who exercises authority one over the other? He says, you don't need church. You don't need any kind of religion, religious church. But how are you going to take care of the needy? Just, I saw somebody who was hungry the other day, so I gave him some food. So I'm a good guy. No, the early Christians were extremely well organized. It was one of the things that frightened the emperors more than anything else. is because they were so well organized. They weren't organized from the top down, though. They were organized from the bottom up. You see, it takes a certain kind of person to be a Christian. You are not doing the works of the Father in heaven. You're doing the works of Satan today. You're doing the works of Nimrod. It says in Luke 13:9, And if it bear fruit, well... And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. And that's what you see happening today. You're not bearing fruit as a society. And the reason why is you, you're not doing it according to the way that Christ said, which is also the way that Moses said. So if you're a Jew, you're not following Moses. And if you're a Muslim, I guess you're not following Moses or Abraham. Because they were setting up systems based on free will offerings to take care of the needy of their society. And these were the stones of Abraham's altar. And we explain all this over and over again. And we've been struggling. How do we explain it more clearly so that you can understand it? Well, the fact is we have. You're just not reading it. You're not studying it. You're not examining it. And and it's going to take several shows because I haven't even gotten to the part where I start showing you exactly how this all works and how it's all established.
and how it, it, it operates and, and what the word that we see translated into religion, which is threskia in the Greek, really means. And, and we have to go and take a look at all that and see what they were really talking about when they wrote this sacred scripture. Because most Christians don't know what Abraham was doing and what Moses was doing, nor do they know what Christ was doing. And this was the problem even at the time of Christ where the Pharisees all studying the Torah thought they were doing what the Father said and they weren't because people had twisted the meaning of words to something that was not true, not right, and got them back in bondage in the elements of the world. And I tell you, the elements of the world are going to melt. They are going to go away. And you are dependent upon those elements of the world for your social welfare. So what are you going to do in hard times when this happens? Peter 3.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away and the great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And, of course, we got all kinds of guys saying, oh, that's going to be nuclear war because the elements, that means, uh, you know, like the atomic structure is going to be melting down. You need to read our article on the elements of the world and the elements of the kingdom of God. Looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Again, we we see these quotes in Second Peter and we think, ah, well, there's the elements. That, that, that Those are the atomic structures because of this nuclear, you know, holocaust and everything. Bunk. Where else is this word used? This word, elements. In Colossians 2.8, we see the same word, but they don't translate it elements there. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world. That's the elements of the world. Same word. They just translate rudiments there so you don't make the connection. And not after Christ. The elements of the world. What world? the constitutional order or system of government, not the elements of the planet, the elements of your constitutional order and systems of government. And not after Christ. Well, what would that be? That would be forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare instead of living by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. We see the same thing in Colossians 2.20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the elements of the world, the rudiments of the world, same words, that are going to melt. Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, rules of the world? It's because you didn't just live in the world. You live of the world. You apply to the world for your benefits. And you have gone under the bondage of the world and the elements of the world. And those elements are going to melt are going to be destroyed. And there will be some heat involved, but it actually isn't going to be nuclear war, although there may be a few of those. But 
the point is you're you're bound up in the rudiments of the world and those elements of the world you have been succored by them and succored by the rulers of them you need to turn around you need to go another way you need to go the way of Christ and you need to repent to do that you need to turn around start caring for one another through faith, hope and charity that's going to take some organization on your part if you were to take a hundred kids to the zoo are you just going to watch all hundred of those kids make sure none of them get lost or are you going to create a buddy system well, they created a buddy system when they took me to the zoo when I was a little kid and I got separated and I never saw the guys again until the very end. I found my way to the front of the zoo and um, it was a school deal and uh, I I just waited till everybody else showed up. I didn't get to see much beyond the giraffes because that's where I departed from. <laughs> but nobody missed me all day long. I was gone whole day. Nobody missed me. Because they had the buddy systems times two, and the guy who was supposed to be my moving buddy didn't care that I was gone. <laughs> so Christ invented the buddy systems times ten. It's called the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And if you don't do that, and it requires you do that, no one's going to make you do it. No one's going to force you to do it from the top down. You have to do it from the bottom up. You have to have the patience of a saint, the perseverance of Christ. And you have to have the love of the Father in order to do that. But you have to choose to do it. You have to turn around and not just give lip service. Jesus points out that the only way to really know if someone knows the Father is by their works by their fruits and what you see happening in the world today is evidence that you haven't been operating according to the ways of Christ because the fruits of what you have been doing has brought you back into bondage back into the bondage of Egypt back under corrupt rulers I don't care what country you're in I'm not talking about the particular country that I'm in you can go to any country in the world and you'll see the same thing over and over and over again and what are you going to do about it? So anyway, we're going to look at this religion, religiere. Uh, we're not going to be able to do it all, but we covered the one definition. So now let's look at another definition of religion. And this is just in the Webster's Revised Dictionary of 1913. So this is much later. And I'm sure if you look in the dictionary in your house, you'll find an even altered definition, more so. But it says, The outward act or form by which men indicate their recognition of the existence of a God or of gods. He's a small g, they put. Having power over their destiny to whom obedience, service, and honor are due. Feeling or expression of human love, fear, and awe. Some superhuman or overruling power, whether by profession of belief, by observance of rites and ceremonies. That definition was not the first definition in Bouvier's. There is no real mention of the first definition in Bouvier's in that definition. But that's the first definition in Webster's Revised Unabridged Dictionary in 1913. 
which is over 50 years later. All of a sudden, it doesn't have anything to do with your duty to your fellow men. It does talk a little bit about a duty to God, although it doesn't really say, uh, it says obedience and service and honor are due, but what is your duty to God? Isn't to love God, the ways of God? To, that, that's what it is, but it says in the original definition, your duty to your fellow men doesn't include that anymore by 1913. Something changed. Same word, religion. If you went back to your, your King James Bible, you would read the word religion and you would say, oh, I'll look up religion. Oh, this is the meaning. People always say, oh, you don't need any book but the Bible because it interprets itself. Well, not if somebody's changed the definition of the words that you're reading in it. If they've changed the definition of the words that you're reading in it, you're going to come to a different conclusion about what it's saying. That simple. You don't know what religion means. You keep using that word. It does not mean what you think it means. If you look at the the Latin word religiere, it means to restrain, to tie back. To, to bind. How do they do that? They bind your mind. That's how they do it. And we're going to set your mind free when we continue this discussion of pure religion on Keys of the Kingdom. Till then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.